Well, put your hand up if you like Park Run. Okay, good. We've got some Park Run fans. Very good. I'm sure if I asked the church, I'd get a bunch of hands up too. Uh, you know, I can't really understand. Um, I'm not sure why you would make yourself run for fun. Uh, running is reserved for when someone's trying to kill me. Uh, I'm, not, like, I'm not sure why you would run for fun. It's like when something bad's happening, right? It's like you run to help someone or you run away from danger, but then someone's like, let's go for a run. And I'm like, why? Because park runs fun. I'm like, wait, running fun. Park runs not fun, right? It is fun. Okay. So how, how might you convince me that going to park run is fun? Any ideas? See, I told you it's not fun. You can't even convince me that parkrun's fun. Okay, let's pretend I've never heard of parkrun before, and you're a huge parkrun fan, and you really want me to come to parkrun with you. What might you do? Invite me? It's a good idea, but I don't know what parkrun is, so I don't really want to come. Teach them? Yep. So tell me about it. Yeah, good idea. You could bring them the day before. But the thing is, I'm not, I'm not super like, interested in coming to parks because I really love sitting on my couch and doing nothing all day. That's a great job. And so I don't really like going to parks either. So what if maybe you showed me a photo of Parkrun? Do you think that might help? Be like, look at all these people running. And I'm like, ooh. And then you're like, oh, maybe this might help. And then you showed me a photo of everyone at the finish line, of course, and what do they look like at the finish line? Oh, oh man, I'm so tired. I'm like, yeah, this does not look fun at all. But then you showed me a video, and I was like, oh, it's a little bit more convincing because they actually do look like they're having fun, especially ones that are walking and not running. They look like they're having the most fun. Um, and then, but then you take the video and you show me right the end at the video with all these people and they're standing around and they're talking to one another and they're having good fellowship and you see friends chatting and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, this actually looks pretty cool. Well, maybe I could go and do that. I need you to maybe take me along. Actually, maybe you just need to show me what it's like. And so you take me by the hand, um, or maybe if you, that feels weird, you don't take me by the hand, you just pick me up in your car, you know, and you take me in your car down to the park run, and you take me through the course, like you were saying, and you show me the different run, where you go, and, and you explain that, you know, you don't have to run fast, you can just wander, you know, you can just go nice and slow, because, you know, I'm an old man, so I have to walk really slow, and I've got bad gammy knees, so I can't really run, uh, yeah, I've got my walking cane with me. Good idea. I can use that and that'll help. I could use two crutches, those mountaineer sticks, you know, something like that. And you help me along the way. Well, that would really help me to understand much more than if I knew nothing and you just went, park run's real great. You should come. You teach me and you show me the coolness of park run. Well, we're thinking today about showing people not the coolness of park run, but the wonderful nature of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? How do we live in this world as New Zealanders or wherever you come from? Uh, how do we live in this world in a way that show, gets people to see how wonderful Jesus is and the glorious salvation that he offers us? It, it, it's not actually very complicated. Sometimes we like to think that telling people about Jesus is really hard. 
But actually, living a life that points people to Jesus is pretty simple. And Paul's going to help us think about that. But we definitely need God's help. Because though it's simple, it's not always easy. So let's pray and ask God to help us with that. Father in heaven, we thank you that that you have shown us how we ought to live. And we pray that you would help us to show others how we ought to live. That, Lord, by, by our lives, they might come to know Jesus Christ. We pray that these children, in, in their own little way, at school and with friends, might be able to point people to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for your help to do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are turning through to the little letter of Titus this morning. As we continue working our way through the book. And as I pointed out last Sunday night, we are just beginning a new section, heading into chapter three. And so I I said last week that uh, chapter one, you get those first intro verses, which is the first section, then the remainder of chapter one, which is all about uh, elders and the ordering of the church and why that needs to happen. Then we get into chapter 2, which is all about godliness uh, specifically shown. So what does godliness look like in individual different types of people, older, younger, male, female, slaves, ministers, etc. Then we got the theological foundation of that towards the end of the chapter. Now we shift into a new section in chapter 3. Now we move from godliness in particular groups to sort of godliness in general, that which is exhorted upon everybody for all believers, how we ought to live in this world. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, but we'll read from chapter 2, verse 15, and then through to the end of chapter 3, verse 11. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Amen, and may God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we come to consider it today, let's come before God in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come before you today, and as we come and sit under the preaching of your word, we do pray that, Lord, we wouldn't hear so much words of eloquence, nor clever turns of phrases, but, Lord, we would hear words of power. For your servant, the Lord Jesus, your son, speaks when the word of God is preached. And so we pray, Father, would you declare to us your will through your son and by your Holy Spirit in the word of God. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe what you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I just started reading a new book recently, one that uh, Brother Christot gave me, which is the works of Henry Skugel. If you haven't heard of Henry Skugel, that doesn't matter. But in that, he has this, he has this sermon that he preaches, and it's all about the excellency of religious people. And, and he talks about the way that in comparison to worldliness and godlessness, the, the religious man, by that he means the Christian, the religious man shines forth in the world. And as he gets towards the end of his message, he says the following words. Religion has so much native luster and beauty that notwithstanding all the dirt they attempt to cast upon it, all the melancholy and deformed shapes that they dress it in, it will attract the eyes and admiration of all sober and ingenuous persons. And while these men work hard to make it ridiculous, they shall but make themselves so. If that went right over your head, his point is, no matter how hard the world might try to make the true Christian religion look ridiculous, the gospel will always shine forth in brilliance. And it shines forth in the way we live. It shines forth in the way we live. And we, we know, don't we? We know that we're called to live as, as witnesses. We're called to live as lights. We're called to shine in the darkness. We know, as Jesus said, that we're called to make our good works shine before men so that they would glorify our Father in heaven. 
we know that we need to labor to live like Christ in our workplaces and in our homes and in the supermarket and everywhere we go. But we're forgetful, aren't we? That's why Paul says to Titus, remind them. Remind them. One, one commentator said, ministers should be called the Lord's reminders. That's pretty good, isn't it? The Lord's reminders. Why? Because what we do is just remind you of the stuff you already know. Over and over and over and over again. And so if you ever find yourself sitting here on a Sunday thinking to yourself, I've heard this before, Logan. Good. And you will hear it again. And probably many more times in your life. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say, and Peter would say, and James would say, I write to remind you. And Jude would say, I write to remind you. Because we are all slow, hard of heart, and forgetful. And so we need to be reminded. And so this, this passage comes as an exhortation to Titus of what to remind the people of. And so my plan, Lord willing, is to remind you of what you ought to do. How you ought to live in this world. How do we live as citizens of New Zealand? Or as residents of New Zealand, or whatever your current status is. How do we live in New Zealand in a way that glorifies God, in a way that attracts people, that shines forth the gospel of Christ? Our primary witness, brothers and sisters, is through the way we live. We must speak, but our primary testimony that we bear is first and foremost in the way we live. And we follow that up with words. Now, to understand what's going on in this passage, you need to very quickly look at verse 1, 2, and 3 and understand the logic, sorry, 3 and 4, to understand the logic of what Paul's doing. Hopefully you remember, back in chapter 2, we got all those commands first, and then we got the theological foundation after it, didn't we? And Paul's doing the same thing in this section here. He, it's unlike Paul in most of his letters, but he does it again. He brings a command. Then he gives the theological foundation for it. And so Paul is going to tell us in verse 1 and 2, this is how you ought to live in the world. This is how you ought to bear witness. Then in verse 3, he's going to tell us the sort of witness we used to bear. So we used to bear a witness of disobedience, foolishness, being led astray, slaves, etc. We, we were a testimony of godlessness. But, verse 4, you have been saved. The goodness and loving kindness of Christ appeared, so you've been saved. So now what you need to do is to live as godly testimonies, as testimonies of the grace of God at work in your life. In other words, the reason you go to work and live in a godly way, the reason you do everything we're going to see in verse 1 and 2 is not because it's important to be godly in your workplace, but because Jesus Christ has redeemed you from godlessness. He has saved you from sin and set you free to live for him. And so you become a testimony because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what are the three things we need to be reminded of? There's actually seven things, but we can boil them down to three. What are the three things we need to be reminded to do? Well, firstly, the first thing, number one thing, is we need to be reminded that we must bend our knees. We must, as Christians, as people who have been saved by grace, bend our knees. The Apostle Paul says to Titus, remind them, in verse 1, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Why, why does Titus need to remind them? There's a couple of reasons. One, uh, Crete was notoriously known for being a seditious and rebellious people. Um, they, they had only been conquered about 100 years before this letter was written, so they, they still really chafed under Roman rule. Plus, they were filled with a whole bunch of re really angry Jewish people that wanted to throw off the shackles of Rome. And so you could imagine the young converts coming in from these types of people and now discovering the freedom of the gospel, the freedom of Christ, discovering Christ as king and coming to wrong conclusions. Oh, so... So the emperor is not king, but Jesus is king. Oh, that means I don't need to listen to the king anymore. I can just listen to Jesus. The gospel enables me to throw off all obedience to governments. So that's one reason. But I think the primary reason is that deep down in the heart of every single fallen human being is the desire to throw off authority. Whether it's apparent to a child sorry, a child to a parent, whether it's a wife to a husband or whether it's a citizen to a government, it's all the same. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Do you remember what Jesus said to Eve? God knows that if you eat it, you'll become like him. You'll become a God. So you can imagine the logic of Eve, right? Oh, well, if I get to become a god, then I'm God, which means I'm the authority. It's deep down in the heart of all of us, isn't it? We all want to be in charge. No one likes being told what to do. And so we need to be reminded that there, there are authority structures appointed by God that we must submit to, that we must obey. Romans 13 tells us that every government is appointed by God. He, they are set there by God. They rule under the authority of God, which means if you don't obey them, you're not just rejecting an authority, you're rejecting God himself who has put them there. In the same way that when a child rejects the authority of their parents, they're rejecting God. And when the wife rejects the authority of her husband, she's rejecting God because God is the one who has established these things. And so for the same reason that the Apostle Paul tells the older women to train the younger women to submit to their husbands, he tells Titus to remind the people to submit to their governments, to be submissive, to have a heart attitude of submissiveness and obedience. Well, what does that mean? Well, yes, it means you're not allowed to speak. I know how annoying it is driving 30 kilometers an hour down Christmas Road. My car almost doesn't drive 30 kilometers an hour down that road. 
I know how much more convenient it is to, to watch things that you haven't paid for. Brothers and sisters, we have no freedom to say that law doesn't apply to me, even if it doesn't make sense. I, I mean, we're well aware, right? Everyone's well aware that our governments nowadays are experts of making untold numbers of ridiculous rules. But whether we think they're ridiculous or not does not set us free to say, I will not keep them. Your opinion on the law counts for nothing because God has put them there. They will give an account to God for the way they have structured laws. And they will. Every authority, every government, every king, every prime minister will one day stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for every decision they've made and everything that they've done. You will not bear responsibility for the decisions they've made, but you will bear a responsibility for whether you've obeyed them or not. Now, I know for a fact that there's a whole bunch of you right now in this moment who are, who are saying, yeah, but, but what about? What about this condition? What about limits? And I totally get it. And we're going to go there in a second. But don't rush to there. One of our temptations is to immediately find the limits and the conditions. You know, it's almost like we jump over the fact that we have to actually obey them just so we can talk about the fact that there's all these cases where I don't have to obey them. Be an expert at keeping the law. Be an expert at submissiveness and obedience to the government. And then we can talk about the exceptions. Now, this has a, this has a real life testimony bearing effect. Because, you know, all of us think, yeah, but everyone drives 115 down the motorway. Yeah, but no one follows the 30 kilometer speed limit. Yeah, but everyone exaggerates on their insurance form. Yeah, but everyone, and we say, yeah, everyone, except for Christians, because Christians obey the government. Because Christians delight to submit to those that God has put above them. And so all of a sudden, as Christians, you stand out in the world. You're like a big old sore thumb or toe. It's toe, isn't it? Yeah, sore toe. Sticking out for everyone to see. And everyone's like, why is, why do you, why are you so weird? Just be like everyone else. And say, no, because I believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. And so, out of love for him and submission to him, I submit to those that he's put above us. Yeah, but they're Muppets. What's that got to do with it? So is my husband, but I submit to him. So are my parents, but I listen to them. Okay, don't say that, but you get my point, right? Well, what about exceptions, you say? Surely we don't just you know, obey in absolutely every situation, no matter what. No, you're right, we don't. We, we know, we know that Acts 5 exists. Remember Acts 5? You tell me if we must obey God or man. You tell me who we should obey. And the obvious answer is, we must obey God. Is everything all right? Just 
take a moment of pause before I continue because it's distracting for all of us, let's be honest. Okay, we're okay. Sweet. Good. Better to have the crying of a child than the chirping of a cricket, as Peter Reynolds used to say. So, what about exceptions? Well, the, the ex- exceptions are covered really beautifully in this passage. You, you'll notice that Paul says, be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work. Now, that be ready for every good work is tied to the section that goes before it. It's tied to the section that goes before it. In other words, the way that you submit and obey is by devoting yourself to good works, to good things. In other words, you don't devote yourself to evil. So if the government tells you to do something which is wicked, like abortion, then you don't do it. Why? Because you devote yourself to good works. You are very quick. You are always ready to stop and do anything that would be considered good in our communities, in our places, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace. The people that should stand out when when times of crisis come are the Christians. Because they're ready for every good work. So when the government now calls you to do something wicked, you say no. This is the, this is the defining thing. You see, we remember from Romans 13 that the government has been given to what? Uphold good and punish evil. Now, if they begin to do the opposite, we don't join them in that. If they begin to tell us to sin, we don't join them in that. We continue to pursue good. And good is defined by the Lord, isn't it? It's, it's like wives to husbands. They submit to their husbands as to the Lord. They submit to their husbands in such a way that it is at the same time submission to Christ. So if their husbands tell them to do something that's not godly, they don't do it. And the same is true for us. So we, we must learn to, to bend the knee. And the way we're going to do that, the, the thing that's going to motivate us and remind us in that is, is primarily remembering who our governments are. They are God-given. And so when we look to our governments, we remember that we are bowing the knee. We are bending the knee to Jesus Christ himself, who is head over every authority who is king of kings. And so we may give ourselves to him, give ourselves to Jesus Christ, to his praise in our bending of the knee. So firstly, we must be reminded to bend the knee so that we shine as a light into our community, into our workplaces, to our government, everywhere. But secondly, we must learn to break our swords. We must learn to break our swords. We must be reminded in our, in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with work colleagues, family, the government, authorities, everybody, we must be reminded to break our swords. Ha- have a look at verse 2. Speak evil of no one, or quite literally, blaspheme no one. And avoid quarreling or or don't be warlike. The, the word for quarreling is quite an interesting one. It's, it's the word when it's not negative, 
in this sense it's negative, don't do this, when it's used positively, it was always used for war. Go make war with someone. Go to battle. Paul says, don't do that. This is what I mean by break the sword. We're not to be a warlike people. We need, why do we need to be reminded of that? Well, because of the fall, we naturally just pretty much hate everyone, right? I mean, I, I read an article this week about Australia, which equally applies to New Zealand. It was, it was an American learning for the first time about a thing called tall poppy syndrome. Most of us know what tall poppy syndrome is. When you know, anyone who sticks their head up gets pulled back down. You can also call it the, the crab in the bucket mentality. If you stick a whole bunch of crabs in a bucket, when they try and climb out, they actually pull each other back down again. Um, and, and this American was just amazed. He'd never heard of this before. It was so counter anything in his culture. He was like, this is insane. Why would you do that? He's talking about things like the way that in Australia, um, if, you, if someone else is getting ahead in the workplace, you begin to slander them. Because if they get ahead, then you're not going to get ahead. So you start tearing them down. And he was like, this is just nuts. Why would you do that? And, and yet it's exactly what takes place in New Zealand, isn't it? I mean, tell me you haven't seen this before in work. There's a position up for grabs, a promotion up for grabs. And all of a sudden, everyone starts devouring one another. All of a sudden, the boss starts hearing why everyone else is really useless. Now, I know this because I've been a boss who promotes people. I remember the day I needed a new 2IC. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, all of my work colleagues needed to inform me, all of my workers needed to inform me of why no one else was good for the position. None of them said I was good for the position. They just said, hey, by the way, all those guys don't need the position. They turned on one another and devoured one another. Brothers and sisters, there is a real temptation in our hearts to be like this to devour one another with our words, to use our tongues to slander, to speak against, and to destroy other people. I mean, just consider the way social media is used. Now, if, you, if you don't know anything about social media, there are these social media groups where you can join to discuss Reformed theology, which sounds wonderful, until you get in the group and what you actually discover is there's a bunch of children abusing one another over their theological differences, like savagely attacking each other with godlessness. And you think to yourself, what's the matter with us? And it's everywhere. We must not allow, as James would say, our tongues to become Something that we use to speak blessing to God and cursing to our neighbor, like a fire that sets a forest ablaze. So easy. Don't you feel it? You know, some, someone comes to you, maybe at church, maybe at work, and someone says to you, oh, that person over there, they're really wonderful. And you go, oh, yeah, they're not that wonderful. I remember the other day when I saw, and, you just like, and then you hop in the car and you go, what's the matter? Why don't I do it again? It's so easy. To let our mouths become swords. But not just our mouths, but also our actions. So avoid quarreling, avoid being warlike. We can devote our time and our energy and our, and our bodies even to brawling. The King James Version translates it as don't brawl, don't be a brawler. Apparently in Titus they had issues with people fighting. Bit crazy. 
It's not to be the spirit of, of Christendom. It's not to be the spirit of the church. When, when other people in your workplace or in your family or in your friendship groups speak against one another, shut your mouth and just say nothing. When people gossip or slander, say, I'm not interested. And you will stick out. You will shine into whatever place you find yourself because you will be drastically different than everybody else around you. It's not rocket science, but we need to be reminded, right? So we need to learn and we need to be reminded to bend the knee and to break our swords. But we also need to be reminded to break our hearts. To break our hearts. And so the Apostle Paul says, be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. You know, by, uh, by nature, we can be very harsh people, can't we? People can be really harsh. People can be cutting. And it's not just... It's not just the world, it's us too. We, we can say things and we can act in ways that are just absolutely brutal. I, I remember hearing the story of, of a pastor standing at the door of his church. And after church, uh, a man came up to the door and said to him, our music sucks, and then just walked out the door. I said, what? I mean, I, don't, I had no idea what their music was like. It might have been true, but it makes no difference. It's just harsh, right? And another guy who had a worship leader, a worship leader who, after he had led worship that Sunday, someone came up to him and said to him, I am never coming to church when you're leading music again. And I said, why? He says, because when you sing, you contort your face in the weirdest ways. And you look constipated. And he just turned around and walked out. What's the matter with us? And, and maybe we don't go that extreme, but isn't it so easy for us to just make a scathing comment to someone? To tear people down? Rather than seeking to build people up, as, as one commentator said, seeking to speak good to all or keeping our mouths shut? You know, if it's not good, if it's not godly, if it's not beneficial, just keep it to yourself. We need to break our hearts so that actually we're not just going through the motions of doing stuff, but we actually we act with a heart packed full of gentleness. The, the words like gentle mercy. The, the word it connotes the idea of someone that is, is soft with us. But not just gentleness and, and softness, but humility. That word courtesy can be translated a number of ways. It's very hard to find an adequate word. It's like a humble, gentle person, a person that doesn't think more about themselves than they should, but thinks about the benefit of others, lifting up those around them. Is that, is that your heart? Because that's not the world's heart, right? The world celebrates some levels of pride. 
The world celebrates the powerful and egotistical. The church celebrates what Jesus says. If you want to be great, be the least. And by that, he doesn't mean become the least so that then you can stop being the least and become great. It means, no, no, greatness is being and staying least like Jesus Christ. How can you do that, though? It's so hard, isn't it, to be gentle, to be humble? The secret to doing that is is recognizing and remembering verse 3. That we were once all this. That I was once a fool. I was once disobedient. I was once once godless. And so when I now am confronted by um, an, an unbeliever who is just absolutely ignorant and harsh and irritating and frustrating and you feel completely justified and just wiping them away and having nothing to do with them, you look at them and you remind yourself, I was once that person. The only reason that's not me is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who am I to look down upon them? Who am I to be harsh with them? When you see a fellow Christian that's just bumbling along and makes the same mistakes over and over again, they do things that you think are absolutely nuts. You look at them and you think to yourself, the only reason I am where I am is because of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got to extend to them more grace than God's extended to me. And I've received quite a lot. It becomes easy when we remember who we once were. You know, Augustine uh, could boast when, when the emperor Julian had a go at him, he could boast that Christians when they were asked to sacrifice and offer incense to gods, at all hazards, they sternly refused. But when he summoned them to fight for the empire, they rushed to the front. The the early church fathers could boast that when people fled from plagues, Christians remained, picked up the dead bodies and buried them, and cared for the dying. Early church fathers could boast that whereas Rome loved to celebrate the proud, the strong, and the fearless, Christians could boast of being fearful before God and filled with meekness, gentleness, and humility. And that's, that's the testimony that changed Rome. I mean, it brought a whole lot of persecution with it too. But that's the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ at work in his people that changed Rome. And it's the testimony that could change Manurewa and your family and your workplace. So the only real question is, is whether as Christians we will devote ourselves to living this way or whether we will privatize our faith in such a way that no one will see our light shine. God has saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ from what we once were, that we might be testimonies of his grace. And may he grant us to shine forth a light so brightly that everyone in the dark might be drawn here like a moth to a flame. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have set us free from darkness, that we might live and walk in the light and attract many people to yourself. And we pray that you would help us to live in keeping with your word and in keeping with Christ who has gone before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.